random encounter at a broadcasting facility. A shared interest and love of all things Marvel. Excelsior! A misinterpreted program title. And behold, a podcast is born. Peter Melnick. Podcaster and comic book enthusiast. And Eddie Wilson! Upstate New York radio announcer, still with an inordinate amount of catching up to do. Peter! What are you doing? Here we go with a new episode of The Marvelists. Hi, this is Leah Williams, Marvel Comics writer, currently working on Exterminators. And I've written Amazing Mary Jane, X Factor, and Gwenpool Strikes Back. And you're listening to The Marvelists with Peter Melnick and Eddie Wilson. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And... Ladies and gentlemen, joining us on the other end of the tin can and string, we are joined with Marvel writer Leah Williams. Leah, good evening. Hello. First off, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Super. Fabulous. Actually, thank you for spending some time with us to uh, to talk about your work and what's coming up. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always exciting getting to talk about the stuff that I don't think I would have any other opportunity <laughs> to talk about if not for podcasts and, you know, readers actually being interested in hearing me say something about the work. Mutually beneficial. I like that. Okay. <laughs> and one of the things over the last few years with your writing at Marvel, it makes it makes me appreciate seeing this. You're a part of a new, and I've told this to Aaron Cooter in the past as well for, you know, the involvement you guys are a part of the new golden age of Marvel because there's so many different titles and so many different runs, creators involved, that are leading to this new uh, renaissance of the Marvel Universe. It's cool to see. I think it's a great time to be a comics reader. There's um, so much passion and so many creators involved in making superhero comics that have grown up reading them and are absolutely devoted fans themselves. And being able to bring that kind of passion and knowledge to to the work, um, it it really speaks for itself in the stories. Let me just throw this out there now to both of you. Do we now not know what this age is in that we are in? It's not. You it, said new golden age, so I don't know what other metal we want to call it. With, with uh, the comics nowadays, I, I know they've been saying modern age since like 1990-something, and I'm like, right. it's not modern anymore if it's 92. Postmodern? Who knows? I It'd be nice to know where we all situate ourselves. I'm sitting on a seat in front of you. So in regards to with, you know, the runs and everything, you know, you've been involved with some X-Men titles and you're a longtime X-Men fan. I know that somebody somebody in this uh, conversation, and it's not me, has, I believe, uh, the TikTok name involving X-Men as well. <laughs> I do. Um, my TikTok handle is X-Men Comics, which I've had since before I was writing X-Men Comics. I, I was a Marvel writer at that point, but um, I had just barely gotten started. I think I was working on Gwenpool at the time, um, and I saw that X-Men Comics was still available. So I was like, I'm going to snatch this up because I'm... A piece of crap and Marvel's gonna have to ask me for it but of course what I think is like a really hilarious act of mischief my Marvel editors are just like oh yeah <laughs> we don't care it's fine that you have it well I think with that now we have to go back and have your your origin your backstory and how you got to 
be doing what you're doing. And, of course, that goes back to when you discovered and got into comics and which titles were they. And it can be DC, too, so that's fine. Well, it's it's not. It's uh, Excalibur. <laughs> it's actually X-Men comics. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my comics origin story happened a lot later than my, like, X-Men introduction because my uh, X-Men origins... Um, is the cartoon X-Men Evolutions. I had a huge crush on Goth Rogue in that, and I own it on DVD. So that was my first exposure to, like, X-Men lore. And then um, when I was around 18 or 19, um, I had a college roommate who was a huge comics fan, and her name was Sandy Plenikosik, and... um, she had shelves and shelves and shelves of trade paperbacks. And, you know, like me and my ignorance, I genuinely thought that comics were aimed at and targeting uh, young men exclusively. Like, I, I was looking at her shelves like, what are, why are you reading this? I thought they were for boys. What is this? And uh, she just, like, wordlessly walks out of the room comes back in with a copy of Watchmen and just kind of, you know, flaps it down on my desk. And that is my comics origin story. Um, and that's, I would not normally recommend Watchmen as an entry point if you're trying to get somebody into comics for the first time. But for Sandy, this was her single greatest argument for why I was full of crap, <laughs> why I had no idea about comics. And uh, it worked. I, I was hooked from that moment on. And um, after college, I started working in a comic book shop. Um, and uh, every day, I, I would just read back issue after back issue. And I was intimidated by the X-Men line because it has kind of a notoriously unwieldy uh, continuity in history. It's, it's very convoluted. So I came at it sideways. I read a lot of the peripheral titles and fell in love with those first, like Peter David's X Factor, mm. Chris Claremont and Alan Davis's um, Excalibur, which is like still, I think, my favorite comic run of all time. It's the most British, um, non-British comic ever made. <laughs> it's fantastic. It is so irreverent and silly and joyful. Um, and yeah, uh, that... That is my official comics origin story. Shout out to Sandy. Um, She's one of my best friends to this day, so I always love to credit her whenever possible for getting me into comics in the first place. And um, as far as Marvel, I was living in Colorado and working at a kind of boutique ad agency. We did, like, marketing and social media for clients around the Vail Valley and um, I had just published an article for The Atlantic about how Hollywood kind of whitewashed the Old West and stories of how the West was settled. Um, and I got an email from a Marvel editor, Chris Robinson, and he was like, hey, I read your article and I really liked it. And I went back and read your uh YA novel that you you self-published before and I really like that too have you ever thought about writing comics and of course like I had kept up my pool list I knew exactly who this man was (laughs) and the titles (laughs) that he had worked on for Marvel 
And I opened that email when I was sitting in a 200-year-old cabin that I was living in in Leadville, Colorado. And there was a, like, 15-foot-long vinyl poster of the X-Men on the wall behind me lining the entire, like, living room of this cabin. And I opened this email and just, like, dissociated. I had to take 12 hours to calm down before (laughs) I could reply. And then uh, when I did reply, I just answered yes, and I lied. No, I had not ever considered writing comics. I did not know that was a possibility. I assumed that, you know, it's it's like Hollywood. You got a one in a million chance kind of thing. And um, it turns out that this guy had followed my Tumblr blog from back when I was working in a comic book shop. So when he started seeing my name pop up on these other articles, he was like, oh, yeah, I remember her. And that's um, what prompted him to read the stuff that I had published and then reach out to me. One of the things that, you know, by the way, you mentioned earlier with, you know, your introduction of the X-Men being X-Men evolution. I'm, you know, like we're around the same age group. I thought for certain you were going to say X-Men 92 or now it's known for some reason as 97. But you know, the 92 run and everything and evolution, I've always wanted to give evolution a try. I just never had the time or the chance, but I've been wanting to over the last few months. What would you say is like the biggest selling point for evolution? Um, I mean, I'm biased. So obviously I think like teenage goth rogue is just majestic and I love her, but it's, it's a younger show and it's, more accessible to me because the stories are uh, involving young people and it was young when I first saw it um, like around the same age as the characters and uh, they're dealing with you know kind of high school drama and not fitting in and that kind of thing um, at the same time as they're dealing with their mutant abilities and um, obviously being othered is kind of the the core it it is the the center of of x-men lore um you know they are they protect a world that fears and hates them now also in regards to you know part of your comic origin story the whole you know you meant again you mentioned excalibur and one thing i just have to throw back out there again is when i said like it's the most british non-british comic I'm saying in the sense of like 2000 AD, it feels like a 2000 AD comic. And yet, you know, it's written and made by an American company. And like I was uh, binge reading it not too long ago and it still holds up insanely well. Oh, it absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. It's like my my comfort read comic, one that I always revisit. And again, you know, like going, it's funny because like you you also mentioned the X-Men continuity and it's. I appreciate that you brought that out like immediately because that's the one thing I always ask uh, anyone involved with writing anything X-Men. I'm like, what kind of hell is it like having to deal with the continuity and just, you know, the confusion, mass confusion that it can lead to? Well, it's a lot easier now in the, you know, Hickman era because he he did his thing of consolidating the history and kind of starting um, a new more accessible era of X-Men comics, starting with House of X and Powers of Ten, which is kind of the primer um, to everything that's happened since then. Um, So we had uh, House of X and Powers of Ten, and then Dawn of X, and now we're in Reign of X. 
So it's all, uh, you know, stemming from that. And while character history and that kind of thing is, um, of course, respected and honored, uh, the the choice to kind of create this new world and make the stories more accessible to new readers, to people coming into X-Men for the first time, was very deliberate. And in regards to uh, the, you know, the X-Books, it was, because uh, was, it's technically an X-Book now, was Gwenpool your uh, first X-related book? Um, no, it, that would have been Extremist. Extremists was my first mini series, and um, it kind of happened right on the cusp of Hickman taking over the line, um, and that was my first story uh, involving um, that many X characters. But I think even before then, my first X book would be um, I wrote the first annual for X-Men Gold, and it was an Excalibur reunion with the original cast. Now, also in regards to uh, your run on Gwenpool, you made like the change in the continuity that Gwenpool is a mutant, and it must be cool, you know, as a you know a fan coming in, you're able to like do something like that, and it's it's a big deal in the realm of you know the Marvel universe for that character and for the fans of that character. Oh, absolutely. And the the struggle um, that Gwen was having, uh, you know, which was clear from issue one, she talks about it, she breaks the fourth wall, the fact that she has to prove her relevancy in order to continue existing in Marvel continuity, um, you know, under threat of being, like, struck from the records, that was all real. That was actually... Like my assignment going into that, I had to make her matter to new readers, um, but I couldn't show her as she had been seen before. So, you know, I'm. It, it was like this uh, triathlon of writing where I had to balance all of these different things, and I wanted to bridge who she was you know, who readers fell in love with while also, you know, trying to give this new direction that they were asking me to do, that kind of thing, and also proving her worth beyond any belief. And then because I was working with Jordan D. White, the senior X-Men editor, um, and around this time was when um, House of X and Powers of Ten were first starting to come out and people were learning about this new Grecoan world, that was when it struck me like, okay, I am going to alter her continuity and like retcon the fact that she's a mutant because if she's under Hickman's jurisdiction, it means nobody can touch her because Hickman is very powerful. So if she becomes a mutant, then it means like she is no longer under threat of being struck from the record because it, it literally changes her from one office to another. I'm learning this for the first time now because I'm so behind and and or tried to limit my uh, my new stuff intake because I'm not in the same I don't think I don't think age group as the two of you are. Uh, we've been mistaken for father and son, in fact. So. Oh, it's my favorite moment at a convention of all time. <laughs> <laughs> Is this your dad? 
I don't know, Dad, are you? <laughs> but I digress. Oh, you were asked the question separately. Oh, is that oh, your son? Um, no, no, no. We are you do sure a, about that? Just, are you sure about that, We pops? just do a podcast. Yes, my mother had me tested. Cats uh, in the cradle in the silver. Anyway, so. Something else, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, in regards to, you know, Gwenpool, like, it's funny because your, you know, your run on the character is considered one, like, there aren't a lot of, you know, runs of the character, but your run immediately, you put a stamp on that, and it's like one of those, this is considered to be one of the best runs of Gwenpool. It's like, damn, that was fast. You know what I mean? It's like, how does it feel as a writer to hear something like that, you know, in regards to a run that you do, like, afterwards? Uh, it makes me feel pretty humbled and relieved, you know, because whenever... Writing for Marvel and DC is not like writing for writing your own stuff in a variety of ways. But in one of the most significant ways, it's because you kind of function as a torchbearer when you're taking on these characters. They are not new characters that you're establishing for the first time. They are characters that come equipped with an audience who loves them and has followed their history sometimes for decades. There are characters that have been around for 80 years, and you, it is your responsibility as a creator to honor that history and that lore and what fans cherish about the character. So when, when I hear from fans that they you know, were, were satisfied with my handling of a character, it makes me feel relieved and humbled. I'm, I'm glad that I was able to make people happy. I know when, uh, when, uh, Al Ewing was working on the immortal Hulk, like he was still super like, you know, yeah, I'm just doing the best I can. And it's like, it's nice it's to character see that. defining. It yeah. is incredible. It, uh, I got that reference. That's good. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I just got it. Uh, anyway, oh, really? <laughs> I really did. <sighs> Not all the synapses Leah, are running, Eddie. Leah, pity me. I've been the one that's up since four this morning through a radio show, and now here we are. <laughs> yeah. But in regard, you know, like listening to uh, like a creator like yourself or Al, it's it's nice to see that the sense of humbleness about this because, you know, there can be like a creator out there who's just like, yep, I am the absolute greatest. It's like, no, you you got to, you know, be humble about it. And that's the end of that anecdote. Was that an anecdote? Well, I don't know. Well, it's after you like <laughs> stories. The point oh, is, I do love stories. But anecdotes kind of rank up there second, I suppose. They do. But in regards to your work at Marvel as well, you know, in 2019, early 2020, you were working on The Amazing Mary Jane. And it's funny because you ended up also crafting a great Mysterio story. And over the years, you know, when uh, Spider-Man, uh, I got to remember which one it is. It's Far From Home because he was Far From Home. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that one, you know, people were looking for like Mysterio stories and I was racking my brain to try and figure out what would be a good Mysterio story for someone to read. And it's like, well, there is the, uh, you know, the Daredevil run by Kevin Smith, but you know, it's kind of dark because of the whole Karen Page thing. So I wouldn't recommend that for somebody, but you know, after I'm reading Mary Jane, I'm like, holy crap, this is a good Mysterio story for someone to read, you know? Oh yeah. I, I fell in love with Mysterio through writing this story I can't remember how exactly this, the, my pitch for Amazing Mary Jane came about and how Mysterio got involved, but I think it was like the, 
the dots that connected in my head were, okay, so we need something to keep Mary Jane busy and kind of separate from Peter for a little while. Um, why not look into her, you know, like modeling and acting past and then immediately, you know, Quentin Beck, his um, origin story is as a like special effects guy on movie sets. So that was like, the immediate connection in my head and it all just came out of that um and as i kind of saw quentin through uh mary jane's eyes you know because she's very warm she's accepting she's kind she's bubbly um it 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 kind of gave me a new outlook on mysterio because of that isn't it funny? You mentioned, by the way, you know, with the characters like disappearing for a little while, like myself, I'm going through, you know, as I say it yet again on the show, my reread of uh, The Amazing Spider-Man, you know, incorporating all the different titles. I'm up to 19, early 1983 right now. And it's funny not seeing characters like Mary Jane around, you know, because they've disappeared for the time being in this, you know, at that time. And it always makes me wonder, like, as a creative type, you know, when is the right time to, you know, maybe put a character to the side for a little bit, have them, you know, take a sabbatical. But also it can, it can be a bit of a problem for, like, you know, the readers because, like, where are they? How come I'm not seeing them, you know? Well, yeah, that's why Amazing Mary Jane came about because it was one of those situations where in the main title um, she, like, there, there just wasn't enough page real estate to kind of give her the story that she deserved. So... That was how the idea of, you know, giving her a solo book came about. Um, while, you know, she's not doing anything in the main title because there's just not time, let's focus on her elsewhere and give her her own book, her own story. And again, it's a great thing to be able to see because you see these characters being utilized and also just developing new things that, you know, you may see in a future title like, you know, uh, Jed McKay with Black Cat she wasn't being seen regularly in the main books, but he was able to flesh out the character much more with her own ongoing and be able to do a lot more with her. And I feel like this was very beneficial for Mary Jane because of what you've done with the character. Yeah, it it was an honor to kind of do some character work with Mary Jane and give her her own agency, her own story and friends and experiences. Um, that weren't reliant on Peter. And, you know, in regards to the character of Mary Jane, you know, she's got a rabid fan base. And I would imagine, you know, you got, you know, feedback from that fan base. I did, but it was only extremely positive. Like from the announcement of the book itself, uh, I heard from Mary Jane fans about how excited they were that she was just getting some love and attention on her own. And she's she's an incredible woman, an incredible character, and I understand the ardor people have for her completely. Um, I'm absolutely right there with them. And it it was very much unlike... Okay, so often when you are announced on a title um, and you're writing a very popular character, the immediate like fan response, people tweeting at you directly, sending you DMs, that kind of thing, um, is vaguely threatening. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, 
I'm a fan of this character. They are my baby, and you are an unknown variable, so you better take care of my baby. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's not. Um, it's not cruel or anything like that. It's um, and it's never really bothered me because, you know, I as I've spoken about before, wanting to honor a character's history is very much the core of my like mission objective as a Marvel writer. Um, so I don't take it personally. But with Mary Jane, because she has so few of her own spotlight moments, people were just celebrating, like. They they weren't even thinking yet. Oh no! What if this lady gets her wrong and like <laughs> does something with her that we don't like? It wasn't like that at all. It was like, heck yeah, she has her own story now for the first time. This is incredible, um, and it it was just a very warm and lovely experience getting to meet these fans of Mary Jane. This show is brought to you by our Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash themarvelists. And on the $3 tier, you'll get access to episodes early and ad-free. The $5 tier gets you our two bonus shows. One, Fantastic Voyage, where we dissect and just talk about the 102 issues, one by one, although if it's a storyline more than one at a time, of Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's amazing, incredible, spectacular, invincible, and fantastic run of the Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine. And two, you haven't read that? A show dedicated to the comic books that I haven't read yet. Some Marvel, some DC, all fun. And on the $8 tier, pick a topic of your choosing, not a topping of your choice. Or perhaps you can be a guest on The Marvelists. Above all else, we thank you for your continued support. I always love seeing, you know, like the reaction when an you know an announcement for a book comes out because yeah you know there's that you know the ominousness of it all you know some fans out there can be very oh i don't know weird but um just the idea of you know like if if something doesn't go well that's fine because like i'll i'll like you know see when there's an announcement for a book and it's like oh so and so is on the title i'm not going to read i'm like yeah it's almost like you know it's not like these characters have been around for 60 something years where I can read other things instead. Golly gee, you know, but yeah. I love, you know, if, if, if there's uh, something I don't like, I'm not going to be like, well, time to start a strongly worded tweet. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> time you, to <laughs> harass the creators. <laughs> oh God. I'm, and I'm, I'm in the, uh, the comics community as well as professional wrestling community. And it's, Oh, there! It's a beautiful. The professional Venn- wrestling community is far healthier. <laughs> I don't know about that because that Venn diagram is pretty. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, now but. that we know, Leah, that you're on the positive side of the Amazing Mary Jane, and if you can say a little bit more about about this, even though it had to stop at uh, six issues, how much more did you have prepared, or if it can be picked up? I mean, I, I can't see why necessarily it it wouldn't continue at some point hopefully sooner than later but how much more did you have you know ready to go how far would the um, title I have gone had the the second arc uh, plotted out so it would have been 10 issues total um we were gonna and i think the sixth issue um was the last one that came out which has her um ending up in montana and the seventh issue, I don't know if that came out or not, was drawn. Um, and I had begun working on the eighth one. But it was just about uh, 
this this kind of I wanted to set something where I used to live in Montana because I really loved it there and have, you know, we have like the fun Hollywood story with Mary Jane. Let's go do like a fun Wild West story with Mary Jane. Mm -hmm. So that was going to be the second arc. And unfortunately, um, the pandemic happened and the industry shut down. So there were a lot of creative casualties, I'll say, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. But I don't think that that door is forever closed on Mary Jane. She's always going to be an incredible character. She's always going to have um, more opportunities to shine because that's who she is. Um, I think that that run of Amazing Mary Jane uh, is a closed door because she's grown since then. She's had other stories in the main Spidey titles. You know, other stuff has happened. So her continuity has changed. And um, it, it can't just be picked up where we left off in Amazing Mary Jane. Now there's more uh, events to account for, that kind of thing. But I, I don't think there's, you know, any permanently closed door against the possibility of her having her own stories in the future. Well, the title is going to have to be Return to Montana. Well, you just, <laughs> you, you mentioned, by the way, a door closing on Mary Jane. If we open that door, will we be greeted with her saying, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot? Yes! Again. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> if you had the again, it makes it original. <laughs> That's true. But it, it's funny because in regards to the pandemic, though, one thing that was a, it, the industry disappeared for a little bit, but I love the whole thing of absence makes the heart grow fonder. And as a result, you know, the comic industry, you know, started to see like, you know, people supporting it again. And like, they don't want to see something happen to it. I love the positivity of the comic industry during that time. Like, no, I want to see comics keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. They did and do. Yeah, but I've always said, I'm sorry to interject here, but if you were to ever see a comic book that was dated July or August of 2020, it's so rare that yeah. everything else jumped from June to September. But, in you know, would you, would you say, though, in regards to, like, you know, how everything is, that there has been, like, you know, an uptick in the industry? Um, in some ways, yes. I think there are new modes of storytelling that did not exist before the pandemic because once the industry shutdown happened suddenly you know with, with the lack of new new product and with like the pencils down emails that creators were getting it was like okay comic shops have to find alternative routes of bringing in income because uh, you know, there's a quarantine and they're not getting new product. Like they need to uh, do other things in order to stay afloat during the pandemic and creators, uh, you know, not being able to continue their work for uh, the major publishers had to find other means of getting their work out there to readers too. It, it was a very testing time, I think, for a lot of people in the comics industry. Um, and it, it absolutely showed, uh, you know, kind of the resilience and passion that people have for the medium itself. Um, I, I think as far as an uptick, we're still, I, I'm just going to be honest, we're still getting back on track. Like, yeah. there are um, printers that closed, permanently there are shops that closed permanently because of the pandemic and they're 
there's no there's no sugarcoating that it, yeah. <laughs> it was really rough well, well, you, but i think that it's it's on an upswing i would say you mentioned the pencils down emails i remember reading the articles about that and that was the most heartbreaking heart-wrenching thing i could read you know just seeing that again broke my heart it, it was yeah it it was really rough and i was one of the very few fortunate ones that was not completely affected by it like yes amazing mary jane um was unable to continue but i also had uh, i was working in the x office at this time and um x-men titles are a big earner um so i was able to continue working on x factor and continue working on x factor uninterrupted and with x you know Work with X Factor. That's one of the you know titles that you've worked on involving the X Men, and that was again a part of the uh, the Hickman line. How did that come about? Um, it was after Extremis, and while I was working on Gwenpool, or sort of towards the end of Gwenpool, and Jordan D. White just called me and asked, "Hey, do you want to write X Factor?" And I was like, shut up. Are you what? (laughs) Um, It was kind of too good to be true for months and months and months. Um, Working in the X office has been just one of the best experiences of my entire life. I absolutely adore being a part of this, being a part of, you know, not just the Hickman era, but uh, what comes after. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a joy. And then. Oh. Leah in the X-Verse. There it is. And it's funny because in regards to, you know, other characters that you've worked on in the Marvel offices, the Doctor Strange one, it's, it's appropriate to talk about it now because there's this uh, movie that came out. I heard uh, you did? It, it starts with an M, you know, uh, uh, Mor- Morbius. No, hashtag <laughs> Morbius sweep. But no, um, Doctor Strange in the multiverse of uh, Morbius. No, uh, Madness. But with that movie, you know, coming around a lot of people are checking out all the Doctor Strange uh, series and whatnot and one of the ones I highly recommend is the Doctor Strange The End that you had worked on with uh, Philippe and just phenomenal stuff and with that one first off how did that come about and also uh, you know first have you seen uh, Doctor Strange yet or no? I saw the first one I haven't seen um, I haven't been to a movie theater since before the pandemic (laughs) it's all good uh, I so I saw the first one, um, and I watched it while I was writing the script for Doctor Strange: The End. Um, and that is a one shot. If any of your listeners don't know, Marvel has this uh, kind of series of one shots called Character Name: The End. And what it is is an imagining of a character's one true death. And that sounds like really, you know dark and morbid and some of them are but others like uh hulk the end are beautiful heart-wrenching lonely just gorgeous gorgeous pieces so i was asked to do uh the doctor strange version of these um and the reason being i had written doctor strange in another one shot called what if magic that ended up being so popular with readers, uh, our 
there was an editor kind of on the lookout for another opportunity to continue stories set in that alternate universe. So when this came up, uh, Chris Robinson contacted me and Philippe Andrade, who did the art on What If Magic, and Chris O'Halloran, who did the colors on What If Magic, and asked us if we would reunite to tell another story in the same universe um, and make it Doctor Strange, the end. So uh, we all agreed uh, instantly, you know, we had a great time collaborating on What If Magic, and we're thrilled to work together again on Doctor Strange, the end. So ended up becoming, the way that we see this story is What If Magic is part one. There's a part two that does not exist, that it hasn't been written, and then part three is Doctor Strange, the end. It is the finale. Um, and I wanted Doc Strange to go out with a bang in, you know, a really beautiful and majestic and kind of holistic way. Uh, it's, it's not gruesome. It is not violent. It is tender and mystical is, is how I would describe it. And it was just like, what if magic, it was one of those projects where, um, you know, if you're anybody who's listening and they're creative, they're going to know the feeling I'm talking about when you're working on something and it clicks um, with you and with your collaborators. Like, it, you know it's right. You Down to your core, it clicks. That's what working on Doc Strange the End was like. And, you know, I'm on the very last panel on here, and just Magic's line of sweet hells, you're going to be a noisy spirit, aren't you? And as, you know, Philippe, Philippe's art on this, like, just the little subtle nuances. I'm looking at magic as she's brushing away the tears, not with, you know, her whole, like her fingers, just with the, uh, the butt of her palm, just seeing that, like, there's just something about that. I don't know why, but like just that visual impact. And like, when you wrote the script for that, did you include that little note to have her do that? Or was that like a Philippe, uh, original impro- uh, improvisation? I included the, the panel description of like, she's brushing away her tears but I, I don't think I said with the palm of her hand. Because um, that's impactful. Like, honestly, like the way I yeah, see that, yeah. that's really good. And, you know, like a story like a what if with this, or not what if, with the uh, Doctor Strange, the end, it's a self-contained story in, you know, 30 pages. And I feel like that's a great way for an aspiring writer to tell a story because what you're doing is you have these constrictions of you have to tell it within this, you have to tell X, Y, and Z and get it done in this you know, fashion. It's the best way to learn how to write. Sure, sure, absolutely. And that's definitely um, kind of how they, they move people up um, in, onto like bigger projects at Marvel. I, my first Marvel gig was like an eight-page story and then I did some more shorts, and then I did X-Men Gold Annual. Um, so that was like a full issue. And then I started doing miniseries. Is this Doctor Strange the end? Maybe this is an obvious question, or it's either a solid yes or I don't know. Does Doctor Strange the end become the incentive, perhaps, for the more recent Death of Doctor Strange miniseries? I don't think so. I think that um, that was... A separate pitch the 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 end series are supposed to be like a platonic ideal of, the, of this character's death um 
so it it does not mean it does not preclude the opportunity for the character to die different ways before mm. then or in you know something else happens in the main continuity now in regards to going back over to Mary Jane the artist you worked with on that is going to be the artist you're working on Exterminators with uh, this summer. Yes, uh, Carlos Gomez. Um, and it was because of that great experience working with him on Amazing Mary Jane that I requested to work with him again on my current Marvel book, which is called Exterminators, and it is a grindhouse title. It is the X office's first grindhouse book. And it is also my first parental advisory rating, Mm. which I'm very excited about. And uh, I asked to work with Carlos specifically because I remembered during the process of amazing Mary Jane, when pages would come in, um, we'd get inks back and I would just have this like bisexual panic because everybody was so attractive. Mary Jane looked great. Quentin looked great. For some reason, the bowl cut when it's drawn by Carlos, it works for me. Like everybody is just so beautiful. So I thought, you know, who better to collaborate with uh, in this book where like we've got a sexy cast of ladies and their clothes get shredded and they're in these just outlandish opportunities. Who better to collaborate with than Carlos Gomez? And sure enough, he is nailing it page after page after page. Um, he he understands the assignment completely. I'm really into this for the idea of it being grindhouse style. Like that's something I would not expect to see at Marvel, but to be completely honest. It is all about reinvention, just doing random things that, you know, anything possible, you know? Right, right. And the way that it came about is it kind of had a few different incarnations. This project is sort of like, you know, one of my blue sky thinking dream books um, because it is so out there and outlandish. Um, And it originally started as this idea for Dazzler the Vampire Slayer, because Dazzler's powers, uh, the acousokinesis and the photokinesis, the way that it interacts and creates uh, like UV light specifically, she is an atom bomb to vampires. She is uniquely destructive to vampires, and I was fascinated by that. But then over time, when uh, you know we would discuss this in, we call them... Krakoan council meetings every other week we have a zoom meeting together at the x office on wednesdays where we go over everything that we're doing and what's in the pipeline what's next that kind of thing so over time through these meetings when i was talking about this dazzler the vampire slayer thing it started to like shift a little because i realized you know other characters were available and when i realized that there was an opportunity for not just you know one explodey character, but three of them, and also Laura Kinney. <laughs> I was like, okay, it's Grindhouse. Like, it's Grindhouse of X. This is what we're doing now. Oh. <laughs> I, I am committing to this fully. Like, glitter, blood, disco, vampires. It, it's this. This is it. Um, and I, I'm having a blast. Carlos is having a blast. Our editors are having a blast. It's a ridiculous book, but a lot of fun. The exterminators are having a blast, but the blast is their opponents. So, <laughs> <laughs> literal blast. <laughs> 
that that again that's cool to see because i feel like with with x-men x-men is always about reinvention and trying something new and different and going in that direction is something i would never expect and i am all in on that sounds like an amazing kind of concept it yeah it really clicks together in kind of a perfect way especially with the cast that we have we have dazzler boom boom jubilee and Laura Kinney. Um, and Laura is like the pinch of salt that you add to brownie batter to make it sweeter. <laughs> like she, she is kind of at first the straight laced one. And while Dazzler and Boom Boom and Jubilee are just like wild, they are chaos, especially together. Um, but then, you know, by the third issue, once uh, Laura has gotten used to being around um you know she's she's got a history with jubilee so that's one thing but she's less familiar with boom boom and dazzler and they're really like exuberant over-the-top personalities uh so by the third issue she's gotten used to them and then she starts to come out of her shell a little more and get a little her humor is different it's drier and it's a little more ruthless but something about it just clicks perfectly with these other women and the story the story is simple. We open with a breakup. Dazzler's going through a bad breakup. And uh, then while she's commiserating in uh, kind of her local dive with Jubilee and Boom Boom, they uh, get kidnapped. And from there, it's, it's just one thing after the other after the other. They find Laura along the way. Now, has this changed from the initial pitch of it being uh, Dazzler the Vampire Slayer? Will there be vampires? Will there be a Dracula in this? Um, yeah. Now, does Moon Knight get his money back? <laughs> no. Damn. <laughs> no Moon Knight. Are you able to say, Leah, though, whether this is slated to be a an ongoing or a, a certain amount of issues? It's a miniseries. It's okay. five issues. Gotcha. Okay, but I want it to be a full series. Well, just, again. I mean, <laughs> I definitely would not be opposed to yeah. writing more of it, but it felt safer to say, like, let's just shoot for five issues and... You know, if it's popular enough, I, of course, would love to continue it. Exactly. Hell yeah. <laughs> I, I'm Again, just I love different things with this, just taking chances and just going with something completely different than what is, you know, the normal thing to do, you know. So, and I'm also just a big Dazzler fan. Dazzler is like one of the most underrated characters in the X Pantheon. So to be able to oh, see absolutely. to see her, you know, on the stage, big stage again. Hell yeah. Dazzler. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's, and she's amazing in this. I, I love putting her as this kind of unspoken de facto team leader, chaos team. She catches on more. I'll see more than just a couple of uh, cosplayers as Dazzler in different cons and stuff, too. So when you see one, it's like, whoa, okay, that's a deep cut, so to speak. <laughs> but yep. now, could you know, she becoming more into the mainstream. And even seeing uh, Jubilee in several instances, but boom, boom, not yet. Out in the cosplay field, yeah. Well, one thing in regards, you know, you, Eddie just mentioned deep cuts for characters. Who is like the deepest cut character that you know you threw in a book that people were shocked that you like that? Oh crap! Someone remembers them. Um, probably Briquette, Maggot, Kyloon. I basically I had this short called Rejects. R E J E X capital mm. X in um, 
the Domino annual, while Gail Simone and David Baldion were uh, doing the Domino solo title, I had this short in the Domino annual where Domino and Nightcrawler made a support group for the non-human passing mutants to get together and talk about what life is like looking the way that they do in a human world. Um, so I, I pulled some of my favorite deep cuts <laughs> uh, in order to to kind of create this this short, um, and that was a lot of fun. I was very happy to give Maggot some dialogue. Does uh, Glob Herman make an appearance? Oh my god! No, I don't consider him a deep cut. Um, but also at the time, I think he was in school. <laughs> he needed he needed to get early dismissal. He's getting picked yeah, on. he would have had to get like a parent <laughs> note or a hall pass to start with. Jeez. But it, it's just funny to be able to see, like, so many... Like, the X-Universe has so many characters, and I feel like after a while, it's just like, holy crap, that character has... Like, they're their own world, you know? And I love that about the X-Universe. Yeah, absolutely. There's probably, like, a thousand mutants by this point. I w- oh, my God. <laughs> but it, it's funny because there's, uh, you know, Spider-Man now, like, that universe they're start slowly starting to also incorporate characters that you know people wouldn't expect you know we're getting now a major motion picture starring bad bunny as el muerte a character who is in or el muerto who is in two issues you know mm-hmm. yeah so it's a it's a weird time but it's a cool time to be a fan of all of this stuff nowadays and that's the end of my yeah, anecdote absolutely. <laughs> before we go how can people get a hold of you on them the are social medias uh, on Twitter, I am my monster is chic c h i c, and on Instagram, I am handaxe with an e, and on TikTok, uh, I'm X Men comic. I got to ask about the handaxe one. What is the origin of that name? Because I've seen that so many times, I'm like, I I don't get it, but it's cool. It's it, it's metal. I, it is like one of my oldest internet handles because I wanted something really easy to remember. I wanted like a one word uh, handle and um, hand axe was available almost everywhere except TikTok and Twitter. Mm-hmm. But like on Tumblr and all the other places, both platforms, I can be located um, under hand axe. For The Marvelists, I'm Peter Melnick. I'm Leah Williams. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior!